Welcome to Prime Time, Aqua Bitches. Welcome to the first of four special editions of Top Man here in the Aqua Cave for Aquatober. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us here. My name is Johnny C. And as of course you're probably already aware, the feed has been taken over by ghosts and goblins and all kinds of shit like that. But because it is October, my favorite month of the year, I hope it's yours too. We're here for some list-based entertainment as always. My name is Johnny C. Now, as I said just like two seconds ago, this month we're going to be dropping four special editions of Top Man, all centered around the fucking ghosts, goblins, and spooks, and spectaculars, and slasher shenanigans around big horror franchises. Uh, Today's edition is going to cover the saga of the nightmares of Elm Street, 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 street. And then, of course, we'll cover Friday the 13th, Halloween, once Halloween ends, releases. And then we're going to do sort of a hodgepodge as well. It's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. And I hope you brought your list as well, because I'd love to get some contrasting and comparing going here at the end. Maybe hit me up on social. On Twitter, I'm found at C. That's T-H-E-J-O-N-N-I-E-S-E-A. But I don't want to put you guys snoozing in dreamland so you have nightmares of your own. Let's get into the topic at hand. So, A Nightmare on Elm Street. God, you know, of all the big horror franchises out there, I'm going to have to admit this off the top. Nightmare is not my favorite. It's not even in the middle. It's probably why I'm doing it first. It's... It's my least favorite of all of the big three horror genres. And I'm sorry if it's if it's your favorite. I, I understand why it might be. You know, obviously, I've done a lot of rewatching over the last week, okay? And there are aspects of this franchise that I do appreciate. But man, oh man, oh man, does my ADD kick in when we're going from a dream within a dream to a dream. Which I know is a ludicrous thing to hear me say. Because I've pontificated that Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is like four hours long, is a, is a good movie. And I get that that's really long. But one of my, one of, I guess, going ahead and getting into it. One of my least favorite aspects of the Nightmare on Elm Street series is their ability to be like, oh wait, never mind. Like, there's, there's two... Sometimes the dream sequences just take too long to get anything going. And then when they do get going, they become inconsequential to the narrative. And it's just kind of like, yeah, we have this uh, narrative technique that we can use to sort of eat up some time and maybe get some thrills and chills. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary on that. But I don't know. It's just sort of sort of my thing. Um, and also, when it comes to these lists, I also want to be clear that, that these are my lists for the top however many, depending on the franchise. I'm throwing out my preconceived notions to look at things like fancy filmmaking. Of course, fancy filmmaking will apply when necessary if I've got like a, a something that's neck and neck and I need a, a tiebreaker. But, you know, these are just mine. Um, and if you have higher placing, that's why I gave up my socials earlier. I really want to know uh, how you disagree with me. Be cordial, but, you know, open up a dialogue. I think that's a hell of a lot of fun. So being the best made in a franchise doesn't get you number one by default. Let me repeat that. Being the best made doesn't automatically get you number one because otherwise all these lists are just going to be like, yeah, the first one's the best. I mean, come on, that's not fun, is it? Is it? Now, if the first one does end up being the best, I will try to explain why. So, as I promised, let's just get into the topic. It's a nightmare on Elm Street. By my count, we've got nine of these bad boys. 
All right, which does create an uneven number. So here's how this episode is going to go. Right off the bat, right now, I'm going to give you my number nine. And then I'm going to give you the next two items in the franchise that I'm going to rank in the next slot. And then we're going to battle it out to see who gets placed where. Well, it's not going to be an actual fight. Well, you'll see. Let's get into it. So number nine of all of the films that are a part of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, one way or another, this, in my opinion, is the worst one. It is, from 1991, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. In my opinion, right from the get-go, this movie doesn't know what the fuck it is doing. It starts with the ridiculous, like, 10 years from now prologue. Well, when is now? Uh, You know, it, it just... It doesn't really seem like it has an idea of what it's doing with the mythology. Now, what the fuck does that mean? These Nightmare on Elm Street movies hang loose with their own internal mythology. And that's sort of a horror franchise uh, given, I guess you could could say. It's not like these are part of some grand cinematic universe that was created when uh, companies realized that that was a good idea to keep your audience happy. And also makes it easy to use a number four as an entry point. Just thinking off the top of my head. It's like if there's standardization in your mythology, then a person can feel comfortable jumping into number four if they feel comfortable uh, getting a brief understanding of one through three. But these things just hang high and loose. It's, you know, there's only one kid left from Springwood, Ohio. You know, all the kids and teenagers have died out over time and the parents aren't making new ones. Like, I don't get it. And, And, you know... Is this truly the story of the last child of Springwood? Well, not really, because it ends up being the story of Freddy's secret daughter. Fuck, I forgot to mention spoilers. Just spoilers across the gamut for A Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm sorry. If you haven't seen them all by now, I I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you, okay? But this movie really relegates uh, Freddy to the Bart Simpson role. Fitting, because it is 1991. And it just goes to prove that Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger belong in the 80s and nowhere else. Of course, we'll talk about that more when we get into Friday the 13th. But I don't know. It This also reeks of trying desperate to be relevant. Uh, doing things like having Freddy act like Bart Simpson or Bugs Bunny. Uh, having the video game sequence or the 3D sequence. Good lord. Uh, Freddy playing video games is kind of ridiculous just to jump back to that. Uh, you do get a secret Breckenmeyer. Well, it's not really a secret, but Breckenmeyer's in this. Uh, who, who, of course, is uh, uh, Travis from Clueless. And uh, John Arbuckle from Garfield. Uh, and all sorts of other stuff. It just... It's funny because I'm like, oh, yeah, he's in Clueless. He's really good in Clueless. He's like, I like to thank the guys at McDonald's for making this little egg McMuffins. For else, I might never be tardy. All the way up to Garfield. Oh, I'm never going to see Jennifer Love Hewitt's boobs if you keep spilling lasagna. I've never actually seen Garfield, but uh, I have to imagine that is the character's motivation. Uh, And no disrespect to Ms. Love Hewitt. But if, you know, that's not your motivation as a heterosexual male. Um, well, I don't know what you're doing. Oh, that sounds terrible when I say it out loud, but, uh, it is what it is. I, you know, a special shout out to Jen Love for being in those I Know What You Did movies. Uh, and that's the last I'm going to talk about those. So yeah, it's just, it doesn't really work with the mythology because it's making shit up as it goes along. It tries to kind of fit in, but it doesn't. And, and, and I'm not a stickler for the rules here in this franchise in particular, but it's just, it's trying to do something when it's too late. 
It's just too late, and in my opinion, it's the absolute worst one. Now, it's time for a little battle. We're going to look to see who is going to be number 8 and who is going to be number 7. In my opinion, the next two slots on the list should be filled by one of two films. We've got 2010's A Nightmare on Elm Street, the remake, starring Jackie Earl Haley, and then A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Now, A Nightmare on Elm Street 5 is one that I always had pigeonholed as the worst one. Okay, And then I recently rewatched it and decided, no, it's not the worst one. It's kind of like the old WrestleMania 2 syndrome. In my head, I always had WrestleMania 2 pigeonholed as the worst WrestleMania. And then I watched it and I was like, you know, it's not the worst WrestleMania at all. But uh, it does bring back some lovable characters from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which I won't dive into now. We'll talk about later. And uh, it basically revolves around Alice, who's the final girl from a Nightmare 4, and she's back here in A Nightmare 5 with a new group of high school friends, plus Dan, her boyfriend. And there are some ideas here, okay? And I mean that. The idea that Alice is the dream master and, you know, can basically keep Freddy from getting into her dreams, which is established in 4 at the ending when she wins. Spoiler alert again. I like the idea that Freddy uses the dreams of her fetus to draw in her friends, because that's her dream power, to draw her friends into her dreams. Big problem here is, I like the idea. I like the boldness of the idea. I like the outside-the-box thinking of the idea as well. I just don't know about the science here. I mean, I don't know. She's pregnant for like a day, and Freddy starts coming up with this plan. I I don't know. It's a little weird. I like, you know, I want to make this very clear. I'm absolutely in favor of a woman's right to choose, period. End of sentence, end of end of conversation. I do like that the nerdy comic book guy suggests to Alice perhaps have an abortion and that will end this whole thing. But Alice makes a choice that she wants to keep the baby as her boyfriend, the father of the child, has passed. And she wants the child to remember him. Like, it's, it's totally her choice regardless. I'm just saying that I like the fact that it's bold and it goes there in 1989. Like, it asks that question. I like that the the gal who plays Yvonne is in the movie Summer School, and she's in this movie. I fucking love Summer School so goddamn much, and I like that Yvonne, as a black woman, survives to be the final girl in 1989, showing that A Nightmare on Elm Street is trying to go against conventional norms, and I appreciate that, okay? The guy that plays Mark, the comic book guy, is one of the worst actors in the history of our sport. Even his comic book character dress-up is ridiculously pathetic that to get this guy off my tv screen i do also like that fucking as some random part in this movie somebody's watching something on tv and they're watching the 1988 slash 89 staple roller games which i'm a huge fucking fan of uh, that just really stood out to me this go around as i recently rewatched all of roller games during the pandemic so nightmare Elm 5 has some bold ideas um, it's very disgusting. It's gross. There's some gross shit here. The overeating scene is fucking gross. And, uh, you know, uh, bringing in Amanda Kruger as a pivotal part of the plot is okay. They've done that already. I don't really have a problem with it. It's just, this movie's a little, it's boring in spots, but it's ambitious. I appreciate the ambition here. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2010. 
the remake. Everybody always pegs this as the worst. And they're just like, oh, I don't know, it's just bad. The decision to make Jackie Earl... First of all, Jackie's fine as Freddy Krueger, okay? I mean, this guy's an actor. I got no problems with the portrayal of Freddy. Most of the complaints that I have heard stem from the fact that they go the full Monty and do clearly identify that Freddy Krueger is a child molester and murderer, okay? Now, very clear, I do approve of those types of behaviors, okay? But, I mean, come on, it was always there. And, like, I feel like that's an argument that people who are like, oh, I love Freddy, like, oh, yeah, but he's still killing people, but it's like, oh, I can't like Freddy anymore because he's a molester and a murderer. And I'm like, but you were okay with murder? I don't know, it's just like, it, 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 it tries to, it, it takes the Freddy character and it makes him evil, evil, evil. I appreciate that. I like the micro napping. I like the drug use. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy that it's a modern feel. Rooney Mara as Nancy isn't bad. The problem is that she could do this role in her sleep. <laughs> do it in her sleep. You see what I did there? And uh, what throws me off about her so much is that when it comes to the the Mara or Mara family. I'm more of a Kate Mara fan. I I, uh, I watched. Uh, I I enjoyed House of Cards until it was no longer enjoyable. Uh, I have seen Fan Four Stick, uh, and I also really like her in A Teacher, which was a mini series that came out around the pandemic. I, I watched every episode. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was fair to both sides. Just a side note: this is the A Teacher podcast, but they sound. I mean, I believe they're sisters. They just sound alike. Like it's ridiculous. Like. I know that, like, I might sound like my siblings in a way, but it's just like, woof! It's like a, it's like they're, it's like they're clones. Uh, but that's not really relevant to the discussion. But I also, here's my biggest problem with the remake: it's very short. It's only like 90 minutes, and it blows my mind that in this golden era of pop culture films, let's use Fantastic Four as an example. I, I did this actually when I was writing out my ske- my outline for this. So those old Fantastic Four movies with uh, Chris Evans and uh, Jessica Alba and what have you, we look at those now, and it's a clear delineation. That film was made when comic book films weren't taken care of. They weren't looked at as a valuable commodity, okay? And it's just sort of a hodgepodge of let's just get something out here, just, just do something, just do Fantastic Four, whatever, just put something on the screen, let's sell it. Nowadays, when you release a property... It's handled in such a way that makes sure that it's sort of feels like uh, what fans are expecting. Well, A Nightmare on Elm Street does feel like A Nightmare on Elm Street, that being the remake. It's interesting to me that they didn't give it a little bit more. You have the opportunity here to expand and perhaps add something to the mythology. Or to realize that, yes, you're making a first entry, because it's a remake of the first film, but... Why not try to do something to spice it up a little bit and give your audience a hook to dig into as something to want to come back to or maybe see offshoots of this new version of this interpretation? Care about it. You're handling something that's a property that people care about and they're willing to invest in it with their dollars. Go that extra mile and do something with it. I feel like the remake didn't do something with it. And as I previously mentioned, the dream child might not be great, but they did something. They tried something. They tried to do something outside the box. And so the battle is complete. 
Number eight, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2010, the remake. And number seven, a respectable number seven, because I had it penciled in at number nine before I did my rewatches. A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, from that beautiful, glorious summer of 1989. The greatest year, question mark, in film cinema? I don't know. Podcast on that, still TBD, but it's coming. And you know, good for you, Alice. You're one of my favorite Nightmare protagonists. And your second entry, your second outing, ends up at number seven. Where will your first entry end up? I don't know. Just keep listening. The next part of our list-based entertainment is going to take us to a battle between five and six. And the two cinematic beasts that are going to battle it out here are A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and Freddy versus Jason. Let's start with Freddy versus Jason. All right. It may not feel like it, folks, but this movie is way ahead of its time. And I believe that, and I will try to make that point clear. Hilariously, flip side of that, it's also like 2003 in a nutshell. As I'm rewatching this bad boy, it's like, oh, yeah, Freddy versus Jason. And then the title card comes up, and the blood splatters. It's like, Freddy versus Jason. And it's like, new metal, new metal, new metal, new metal, new metal, new metal. I don't know. It's just It really took me back to 2003. On paper, this is a horror fan's wet dream. In execution, it is a bit of a tease, though, I guess. It's interesting to me that this thing ends up being a dream battle. Now, I get it. You're, uh, you know, uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. They're both towering monsters. Of course they should fight. Well, King Kong and Godzilla represent different things. Should they really fight? Well, they are still towering monsters and kaiju, so yeah, let's have them fight. Freddy and Jason are iconic slashers. Sure, now that they're both owned in the film rights department at the time by New Line Cinema, let's have them fight. But the stylistic differences here are really in contrast with one another. These, like the movies, the the modus operandi of Freddy and Jason and even the filmmaking techniques involved are just different. You know, Freddy exists in a, a fantastical realm and Jason, while he's a fantastical character, is literally right in front of you at Camp Crystal Lake walking towards you slowly to kill you. It's not like you're being stalked in a dream. But I get the desire to want to see him go one-on-one. Now let me pivot back to the ahead-of-its-time statement, okay? Let me pontificate on that just for a moment. They, being the filmmakers and scriptwriters, do effectively mix the mythology of both franchises to accomplish a pretty decent coherent or coherent, excuse me, narrative. Apparently, my speech isn't coherent, uh, and that's why I said coherent narrative. Um, it, it also adapts disparate elements of the franchise to make the, the franchises to make them seem like they were intended all along to exist in a cinematic universe. Oh, there's the billion-dollar buzzword of the era, cinematic universe. Should sound familiar because it's the bread and butter of modern cinema. And sure enough, back in 03, they got me because I saw this bad boy in the theater twice. Which at that point in time in my life was sort of a, a, a bigger thing. I wasn't seeing a lot of stuff multiple times. Um, you know, so it's just, 
it's it's cool that they were able to even get this thing on the screen to begin with is sort of I guess my overall statement that I want to make but again it is ahead of its time and it's way that it's it's taking these two film franchises that haven't existed to play into one another and the script finds a way to make them play together okay it's it's you know, it does a fun job of calling back to specifically like the Nightmare on Elm Street film franchise. And notice I said fun job, not so much a good job. You know, it's fun to see things like the Weston Hills Sanitarium and the Hypnosil come back. Flip side of that argument, you do get the dynamite line. Wait a minute, guys, Freddy died by fire, Jason by water. How do we use that? It's like someone said something during the scripting process and the other person accidentally wrote it down as if it was a line in the script. Speaking of that terrible line, shout out to Dawson's Creek alum Monica Keita for being the final girl here. You know, she played the bitchy girl in the first two seasons of Dawson's Creek, a show that I've watched way more of than I'd like to admit. All right, I've seen it multiple times all the way through. There, I admitted it. Also, a shout-out here to the kid that's not Miles Teller, whomever it is that plays the nerdy kid in Freddy vs. Jason. Because whenever whenever I first saw Miles Teller in some movie, I was like, oh, hey, it's the kid from Freddy vs. Jason. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, that's not the kid from Freddy vs. Jason. But once that final Freddy vs. Jason Avengers Assemble moment happens... I'm fucking glued to it every time. Even if it's on TV and edited and there's commercials, I'm still sticking with it and watching that final battle. And that's, I mean, that's what you paid for, right? The two cinematic universes colliding. You know, in in terms of that final battle, Jason casually dodging the, like, propane missiles that Freddy shoots gets me every time. I've always thought that was a boss moment. As is Freddy's fantastic Matrix-style leap out of the water to attack Jason. Every single fucking time, I'm impressed by that. And hey, Jason wins, right? I mean, it's basically a stalemate. But at the end of the day, only one of the characters has their head still attached to their body. And that's a big win for me because I'm a Friday guy as opposed to a Nightmare guy. But Nightmare's... While they are Freddy's modus operandi, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 took the nightmares and played with it a little bit. Freddy got his revenge. We talked about how Freddy's Dead, being the fifth sequel, failed the mythology. Well, right from the get-go, the first sequel goes into business for itself and creates its own mythology by sort of using dreams but not using dreams, and I'll explain. So I don't know if we should hold that against Freddy's Dead, but fuck it, it's still in last place. So Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is basically a body horror film. Uh, Jesse, our our protagonist, who is a male as opposed to a female, which is a nice power dynamic flip, especially in the horror genre, um, he's, he is, his dreams are invaded by Freddy Krueger, but as he now is inhabiting, and, and as an Elm Street resident, he's inhabiting Elm Street, Freddy is trying to use Jesse's body, literally, as a vessel to gain entry into our world. So, while I don't have a problem with this, I think it's an interesting idea, it kind of feels like that's more of like a fourth sequel thing that you would try, right? It's like, okay, we made a bunch of movie about Freddy doing the dream stuff. Now let's try something different. 
Uh, it's not. It doesn't stand out as like, let's try something different right away with number two. But of course, they didn't know this would become a huge franchise, so I'm not going to hold that against it. It's just something that stands out to me upon a rewatch. Elephant in the room. You can't not talk about this. The film is an allegory for a coming out narrative. I love it. It's undeniable. Like, if I sat here and went through every instance of proof, we'd be here all day. And I don't want to do that. Uh, because that's an entire podcast by itself that deserves an entire podcast by itself, but I want to praise it for that because I think it's fucking genius, okay? I love the idea that the second film of the franchise has decided to use the Freddy character, which resonates with the audience, to tell a deeper story, and I appreciate that. If If this was like a standalone Freddy sequel, or if they were like, let's just start over and tell this story... I would honestly put this higher up in the franchise list, but because it is part two, you've got to take all that into consideration. And we spoke about the power shift from a a female to a male protagonist, even though the female protagonist does save the day, uh, thus maintaining the final girl narrative. That's totally fine, but it's just interesting to watch. (laughs) Speaking of interesting to watch, I love the scene where the birds spontaneously combust flying around the, the family room. It's just hilariously shot. But, flip side of that argument, the practical effects in this thing are top-notch. I love the body horror, which is something I'm usually not a fan of. Like, I can't even get through the first Hellraiser, okay? But I really do like this. The practical effects are top-notch, and they really go out of their way to try some cool shit. You know, we talked about the idea of Freddy trying to gain entry through a human. I mean... We get to see Freddy fucking cut himself out of the protagonist. This is pretty interesting. It's a cool visual. Speaking of cool visuals, Freddy at the pool party. Now you are all my children. I love the pool party attack scene. My biggest complaint is that it doesn't last as long as I want it to. I'm a massive fan of it. It it just, like... I wish it was so much more. I wish it was the entire climax of the film. I love seeing Freddy running around slicing up teenagers. I love the panic, the fear, how Freddy controls the environment. It's badass. It's a cool idea. Again, it feels like the thing you lean into when you've already done everything else. Like, you know what? It's a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, and we're just going to go for it. Freddy's going to come out to the real world, and we're going to switch things up, and it's going to be different. It's like that's a whole movie in itself, and it's just this cool, like, three-minute segment. So, you know, I don't want you to be fooled here. We're, we're fighting over five and six, but these are both strong entries. The gulf between the dream child and these two is huge, okay? I want, I, like, I have mad respect for both of these films. Even though I'm not a huge nightmare head, within the franchise continuity, these are really good. They're just not as good, cohesively, and put together in their entirety as the rest of the films on this list. But I have made a decision. End of the day, the number six entry is going to be A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And the number five entry is going to be Freddy vs. Jason. Versus gets the nod higher on the list because... If you want to break it down to that whole cohesive narrative, which is what we just talked about, it's an easier 90 minutes to get through, and it gets a little bit of bonus points for being way ahead of its time in its concept. Like it or not, 
it's undeniable that it is, and I think it's understandable that Freddy vs. Jason famously is the the um, highest grossing film out of all of these, out of both franchises. I mean, it's what people wanted to see. We didn't even know it's what we wanted because think about how long it took between Freddy and Jason until we started, until we got Avengers, 23, 2003 to twenty twelve. Now, sure, the Marvel stuff started, but I don't know. It's it's a it's a blueprint for how to have success when you tell long, overarching stories at the cinema using multiple characters that can exist within a, a studio's portfolio. I'm not trying to sound like Vince McMahon. I'm trying to actually give the film credit by saying that, and I believe it, too. Sure, this day may come and go that we exist in now, this franchise-dominated cinematic universe era, but it's here, and it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere right now. So, Freddy vs. Jason, number five, over Nightmare on Elm Street 2 because of what it means to, I guess, overall cinema. It's... It's undeniable, and that's where we're going to leave it. Of course, now the, the only place to head is to our battle for a discussion to see who will be the number four entry and the number three entry. And one of the side effects I found during this rewatch uh, that I, journey that I went on was that I started to, I, well, I found myself taking more notes as we got higher on the list, and I, 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 I wrestled with this. But then I was like, no, I think that the reason I'm doing this is there's more to discuss, which obviously lends credence to the fact that these entries are higher on the list. But there are more things I want to point out, and hopefully that comes across more as good evidence as opposed to boredom. I guess only time will tell. But the next two films that are going to battle it out, and I find it fitting that they're paired together, and uh, it's probably going to ruin your list, and I apologize for that. We've got A Nightmare on Elm Street. No number. The first one, taking on Wes Craven's new nightmare. Let's talk about Wes Craven's new nightmare first. This film, uh, you know, you could call it the seventh entry if you really want to, but this is a response to Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and also the return of Wes Craven to the franchise. Uh, he hasn't been around since 3, where he worked in a production consultation sort of way, and also, I believe, in got a, gets a story credit. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But this film is Wes Craven's. This film is meta before meta was a thing. For the time, the script is genius. Wes Craven finds ways to, and, th- and this is so interesting about this. What 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 rewatching New Nightmare did to me was really put me in a spot where it makes so much sense to realize that Wes Craven's next project after New Nightmare would indeed be Scream, and I think that's extremely fitting. Now, this movie. Let's talk about the acting first. You get a pretty good. Return to form from Heather Langenkamp, who honestly in one and three doesn't really wow me as a performance. She's fine. Like, she's totally fine. I'm not trying to say anything bad. But here, she seems more. Child actor Miko Hughes, actually pretty good as well. And I'm usually not a fan of kid actor performances like this. But I believe this kid's having the worst fucking week of his life. 
Back to the script, though, because I, I wanted to get those two notes in about the actors, because I, I don't have a ton of acting notes in this series, obviously, but I wanted to give them credit where credit's due. The script is so ambitious. It may actually be too ambitious. The concept or the desire to want to go so outside the box and be creative, to me, is like a 10 out of 10. The execution is more of a 7 out of 10. The explanations for the story that Wes is trying to tell do get a little muddy, but there are fantastic references to the first film. You know, uh, in in that first movie, uh, the, the Tina character... You know, when she meets with her friends for the first time after having her first, well, the first nightmare that we see her have, you know, she tries to kind of explain it away as characters in this series often do. And she's like, you know what, I bet we're going to have a big earthquake because they say weird things always happen before a big earthquake. Cut to Wes Craven's new nightmare where the characters in the film in Los Angeles are experiencing a deadly series of earthquakes. Uh, which is a nice, not only reference to the first one, but it lets us know that something is happening underground. Something is trying to burst through. And if you're not familiar with this film, I'm going to give you the 10-cent plot synopsis. Wes Craven, the director, is writing a script for a new Nightmare on Elm Street film. He's doing this because through his nightmares, he has learned that... There is real evil in this world. There is an ancient evil that took a liking to the Freddy Krueger character from the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But we as humans, those of us who are dubbed artists, have a power as well. Our power is that we can capture this ancient evil in symbol, in story, in narrative... And this symbol, or this, excuse me, this ancient evil became attached to the symbol of Freddy Krueger. It enjoyed Freddy Krueger. And the stories that our society passed on to one another actually imprisoned that ancient evil and kept it at bay. But once the story became watered down, cheap shot from Wes at the sequels, I guess, the ancient evil sort of became free of being bound to the film series. And now that Freddy's dead, the final nightmare has taken place, this ancient evil has been unleashed on the world and wants to come to the real world using um, the iconography and the power of Freddy Krueger to spread its evil across the globe, I guess. Now that's a real, real big picture analysis. Okay? And uh, I like it. I think it's just crazy enough to really work. Um, and, it, and it gets a lot of support from being meta. We get to see a lot of behind-the-scenes inner workings of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. We actually visit New Line uh, Cinema, the studio. We, we get to meet Bob Shea. We get to see actors from the previous films come back as Heather Langenkamp's sort of friends and support group. Her husband in this fake world is a uh, VFX designer and you know they've got this amazing animatronic glove of Freddy's that sort of comes and goes and wanes as a plot point but it's a really cool concept the model work is a chef's kiss Um, but some of the special effects budget and the actual effects sort of betray Wes Craven's intent at some point in my opinion the highway sequence sort of stands out as a 
a little bit of a miss, but I, I'm not. I'd much rather prefer practical stunt work and actual on-set location filming as opposed to CGI. So I do give it credit for that. But I do feel like you can sort of the technology at the at his disposal sort of betrays his vision. However, the model work is mm, just beautiful. The the Freddy Temple that Heather Langenkamp sort of falls into at the end when she's going down the crazy water slide. I mean, I just want that. I want a whole movie of that Freddy Temple. All right? I feel like this script also fails a little bit from having Wes Craven, the character, not the director or the writer, be more of a presence. I realize that can be distracting, but we've already gone there. We're already distracted from this metafiction world. Wes sort of shows up in the middle to give us an information dump and then disappears. I need more Wes. I need him struggling with why he feels compelled to have brought this ancient evil to the forefront in the first place. And that's sort of, it gets, when I said it gets muddy, did, did Wes Craven know this? Did he purposely create the franchise to capture this ancient evil? I don't think that he did, but I feel like the script doesn't address everything that it should. You know, should, and the, this ancient evil was a little ill-defined as well. I don't really, I like the, the overall concept. The idea that it attached itself and was imprisoned by the films is fine. But should Wes have made a choice that the ancient evil was more influenced by the films and decides to use that iconography as a vessel to penetrate the real world and become real? So it's sort of like this ancient evil takes the form of Freddy Krueger and then haunts Heather Langenkamp as a way to become real. Because if Heather tells someone, I'm having Freddy nightmares, then that person can now be given nightmares featuring the ancient evil. I don't really know. I do think that Wes is trying to say something about a creator's responsibility for their art. And I think that, unfortunately, given the way that the United States society and country would go... This is about five years on the nose, that being 1999. It's about five years, well, that's five years from when it was made. It's about five years ahead of its time, if you catch my reference to 1999 and art being blamed for tragedy, and I'm not going to go any further. The, the, The thing I find the most interesting about this film that doesn't get enough is Heather's son's stuffed dinosaur I love this and I feel like the script could have been polished to make it clear that in the in the world of a new nightmare this ancient evil that was in comp, that was excuse me encased by our art says basically is a way of saying that creators or individuals who make something are able to sort of embed breathe life into it and what I mean by that is this the kid often says and it's sort of a throwaway thing that he all he needs his, his stuffed dinosaur because his stuffed dinosaur keeps the bad guy away from under his bed so this child has created a character much like how Wes Craven created a character and Wes Craven's character captured this ancient evil why couldn't the child's belief that this dinosaur would protect him you know, sort of breathe the life of ancient good into this dinosaur. Now, of course, this leads us to a grand finale where in, I guess, this version of the script, 
Freddy Krueger would be attacked by a giant dinosaur, which sounds completely ludicrous, but makes complete narrative sense. Okay? If this story is about artists or imagination empowering true life, why not just go the full bore? You know, instead of having Nancy or Heather kill this ancient evil and dispose of it via normal Freddy Krueger means and sort of a battle at the end of the film, bring Rex back into it. Show us that this ability to empower symbols is across the board. Really go full on with your narrative. Because I feel like one of the problems of the scope of this script is it's too narrowly focused on A Nightmare on Elm Street as a film series and trying to say something about that as opposed to leaning into the full-on fantasy that you're creating that artists empower life, I guess. Uh, you know, I don't really know another way to put it. And I don't want to ramble on like I'm speaking through a haze of bong smoke. But, I, you know, upon the re- I hadn't rewatched this film in a long time. And I kept waiting for Rex to come to life. And when it didn't, that was the thing that stood out to me to most to me the most, which led me on to the trying to trying to figure out why I felt like it should have happened. Because I didn't want to come across as someone who's like, hey, I've got a better idea. I feel like the script is just about 90% there and it lacks that push over the edge. But what an attempt. This should be this film should be celebrated as what it was attempting to do. And being ahead of its time. And I hope that that point has gotten across. Now let's pivot to the original, A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> the first thing that caught my mind are the parents. Now we all know that the parents are obviously the culprits for this entire franchise because they took it upon themselves to be judge, jury, and executioner for Freddy Krueger. But also, one of the recurring themes in the franchise is parents not believing that their kids are actually suffering through what they're suffering. And when Tina, our first protagonist of A Nightmare on Elm Street, our sort of, um, oh gosh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mom, what's her name? It's escaping me because I didn't write it down. Um, you know, she's in Psycho and she gets killed and it's the big, you know, twist. Like, oh, she wasn't actually the main character. And uh, now everyone's screaming at me. Uh, Janet Lee, thank you. Thank you, Brain. Uh, you know, Tina's sort of our Janet Lee. She's our fake-out main character. When she wakes up with a Freddy uh, claw slash through her nightgown, her mom's like, Tina, you either got to cut your fingernails or stop that kind of dreaming. And it just it stood out to me as like, wow. All right, so the parents of this thing are just oblivious from the get-go. Watching this bad boy in 2022 with some nice expensive headphones, the sound design is top-notch. Of course, the idea of this entire screenplay is just genius. Now, that can easily be overlooked in this day and age because the mythology and the mystery of this film, it's almost impossible to watch it with a a fresh set of eyes or dumping all that you already know about the franchise out of your brain. We know Freddy Krueger is the villain. We know he gets you in your dreams, etc., etc. But encountering this film for the first time it does a great job of leaving some bread crumbs and we'll get you know we'll get into the mystery here in just a moment i want to talk about that when it becomes a more natural discussion point uh we talked about the psycho fake out with tina and nancy uh ladies and gentlemen 
introducing Johnny Depp. You know, I, I don't really want to dive into that too much. Yes, this is a film that this is Johnny Depp's first film. Obviously, Johnny Depp goes on to become a, a good actor. He's fine here. He doesn't blow me away. He doesn't stand out as bad like Rod does. The, the Rod actor, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be mean, but you do stand out as uh, suffering amongst the rest. Um, I do love the gag with Glenn, that being Johnny Depp's character. Uh, with the sound effects tape, it just stands out to me as being sort of hilarious and very much of the time. But I could see someone trying to do this in the modern era, you know, with like a FaceTime call, trying to put up like a fake background, like, yeah, I'm at the football game. And they're really at some sort of club. Like, it's silly. But in this era of, you know, we spent a lot of time on Zoom calls with fake backgrounds. It really popped into my head, like, this is a idea that's very much of the time, but it's also a very timeless gag as long as you adjust for it. Uh, Tina and Rod get into some serious hard fucking that Glenn has to listen to. And we get some early meta Wes Craven as Glenn basically spikes the camera and says, morality sucks. Well, these stories in this entire genre sort of acts as a morality play for the youth of America. So I just, I love that we're already aware of that from the beginning of this franchise. I also like that the screenplay allows the tough guy Rod to be the first character that admits... Uh, well, to to admit that they've had a spooky nightmare with Freddy Krueger before Glenn, the sensitive one, does as well. I think that's a smart move. And it also shows a moment of weakness post-coital, which might be a little stereotypical. But at the same time, it, it lets us know that uh, if the viewer had any doubts that Rod may have been involved in the killing of Tina, he didn't. Because the character is not capable of that. The character is vulnerable to Tina. Tina's death, of course, a great misdirect much like psycho but legendary in execution as well it's also the first example for me in this franchise of a dream sequence that just goes on too long i'm not going to ding it for that though because this i mean if there's a time to play an experiment experiment with dream space versus real space the first film is where you want to do that because the audience doesn't know the gag and I'm not using the gag to say it's funny. You know, the, the audience isn't aware uh, completely of, of what we're playing with here with the screenplay. And the filmmaking leans into that. It extends the sequences. It creates an aura of mystery. Um, the audience, you know, they're not, they're not watching. And I tried to talk about the separation between a modern view and a, and a 1984 type view. You know, we, it's not like we've experienced this six times before. So let's play with the suspense. Wes is, of course, a master of suspense, so I like it. It doesn't work for me because as I'm watching these things with the intent of trying to get through every Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm kind of like, let's pick it up, let's pick it up. But I'm, I want to be clear, I would not ding it for that. I actually make, wanted to make a point to recognize that it's important to the overall narrative. Freddy's arms rule. Give me some practical effects any day. Uh, as does Freddy's awkward run when he chases Tina. It just cracks me up. It's not the it's not the only awkward run we'll talk about in this franchise, but we'll save that for later. Um, he's got a great iconic uh, line. Tina's like, "Oh my God!" He he brandishes the claw and says, "This is God." Tina in the real world is sliced open suspended from the ceiling it's horrifying it works there's a reason it's classic uh 
but we've got a mystery to solve, so ladies and gentlemen, introducing Chief of Police John Saxon! I don't know why I gave him the John Cena. Well, I kind of gave him the John Cena intro, so I just gave him the first bar of Cena's theme song. Um, I don't know. John Saxon, I really only really know from the Nightmare franchise, but he, he brings a sort of authority and energy in his performances that I just appreciate. I also appreciate that the uh, the the gross lady from Kingpin is in this movie as the one of Nancy's teachers. She also plays a friendly nurse in a new Nightmare, and I believe she is Bob Shea's sister. Bob Shea being the producer of all the Nightmare films. And when I say she's the Kingpin lady, if you're familiar with the Woody Harrelson classic Kingpin, she's the gross lady who does the with her tongue, insinuating that Woody Harrelson needs to go down on her in one of the most disgusting scenes in cinema history. Nancy, of course, has the nightmare with the body bag of Tina being, uh, you know, drug around the school. Uh, she runs into the hall monitor. It's, I class, it's iconic, cl- classic stuff. Uh, Nancy finds herself in the boiler room. It's important to establish the boiler room as iconography for the franchise. So again, I allow the extended, longer dream sequence to just go by the by for me in my mind, go by the wayside, and, and I accept the fact that we're establishing important information for the film franchise. Now, this is where the mystery sort of starts to happen. Because we have had multiple views now of Freddy Krueger as the killer. But the why and the how of Freddy still eludes us. You know, the claws, the boiler room, the burns, they're all clues. But the motivation is still being held back. Um, And the audience is probably asking themselves questions in the cinemas at this point as well. And I see that as a positive because you've you've given your audience a reason to engage with your mystery. Um, Rod is killed in prison after he's captured. Uh, We cut to his funeral. There's a fantastic Easter egg that isn't actually an Easter egg in 1984, but it's 2022. So the first headstone that we see in the cemetery says Stark on it. And now I'm just imagining that's Tony Stark's grave, but that's what ADD does to you. I also love the priest here at Rod's funeral. He's kind of a dick because he's given the eulogy, assuming that Rod killed Tina. And he's just kind of like, well, you know, this guy's dead. He was kind of a dick because he killed a bitch. But, uh, you know, you reap what you sow, I guess. But the reason I bring up the funeral wasn't for the Easter egg or the priest gags. It's because we're talking about the mystery here, the end of the funeral is where we start to understand that the parents, Marge and uh, Donald, that being John Saxon and Nancy's mom, sort of understand a little bit more about the mystery. You know, the camera lingers on them as Nancy describes the details of her nightmares. And this allows the audience to sort of jump through some more mental hoops to try to get to an answer as to what the mystery is. This works for me more than the original Friday the 13th. Which, of course, people will probably compare the, the, the first two films of these iconic franchises ad nauseum. But just to give you a little bit of what I mean, Friday the 13th, the original, is very much a whodunit as well, as the characters start being killed off one by one by a killer who's not seen. So we know Freddy's the killer. The killer in Friday is unseen. Whereas the true motivation for Freddy is a whodunit, the mystery of the original Nightmare, Uh, The original Friday the 13th doesn't really give us any context clues as to who the killer is. And so when Mrs. Voorhees shows up at the end of the film, 
we sort of get an information dump as to the motivations. And I'm not throwing shade at Friday the 13th. Uh, it's fine. It's just a little bit of a... It's a different tactic to tackle a mystery revolving a slasher killer, so I thought the discussion might be relevant. Um, Nancy then, you know, we go through some some arcs, you know, with her character where people don't really believe what she's saying. Uh, I'd love that we lay the groundwork for Hypnosil, the drug that uh, dampens dreams, even though we haven't talked about part three yet, because Nancy goes to the sleep institute and she's like, isn't there some sort of pill that can, you know, suppress my dreams? And given that that becomes such a part of her character, it's clear that when the story was being configured for part three, they've gone back to one for influence. Um, you know, she gets her iconic rogue from the X-Men streak of gray hair. I think it's on the wrong side in the third one on accident, but I don't really care. I'm not going to ding it for that. Uh, we get we get more iconic nightmares. You know, we get Freddy trying to peer through the wallpaper. We get the tub scene, which is just horrifying. Freddy's glove coming up right, you know, where the gal's vagina would be. And I'm trying to be scientific about it because I don't want this to be a gag. It's horrifying. Like, it's just this raping of... I mean, thank God it's not a literal raping, but it's just... It's such a primal fear, like a teenage girl in the tub, completely vulnerable, and here's this fucking claw finger right by her vagina. Like, it's just... Uh, it, but it's it's... You know, it stands the test of time because, unfortunately, it remains a primal fear that I believe that people probably have. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's a, I don't want, I'm not trying to say it's cheap to capture on that or try to put a symbol attached to it. But it's just very, it very much makes sense given the Nancy character as well. And, of course, the imagery is iconic. And I'm trying not to use, overuse iconic imagery as a phrase here in this discussion. But since next I want to talk about Johnny Depp's iconic death there i did it again i mean i mean this the 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 glenn falling into his bed and the fountain of blood emerging i mean it's talked about ad nauseum in the circles of slasher and the horror genre and uh, there is a reason for that because it's terrifying and the execution is brilliant and it deserves those accolades and i'm not trying to put it on a pedestal to to honor gore for gore's sake i'm not like a huge gore fan but you have to admit the imagery is horrifying. Uh, cut to the very next scene where John Saxon shows up and some EMT guy's like, eh, you're not going to need a stretcher up there. You're going to need a mop. And I use that voice because this line sounds just like something you'd hear in The Simpsons. And so I give it the generic eh, Simpsons guy voice. Nancy, of course, learns to fight back through her dreams. Uh, she becomes empowered by the nightmares, learning that she can pull, she can affect the dream world with the real world, vis-a-vis -vis she can pull Freddy into the real world for the final iconic battle, uh, where Nancy is victorious. Or is she? Was it all a dream? I don't know. Was it all a dream? Was it all meant to be taken as a dream? All I know is that at the very end of this film, a dummy gets pulled through a very tiny space of a door, and I love it. And I'm not being facetious there. I do enjoy it. But the overall ending of this film makes me question, Do is it really the type of film you want to end with a fake-out ending? I understand you want to leave possibilities. You want to leave doubt in the eye of your viewer. But since we know that there'd be like 88 sequels to this thing, 
Can we find a balance between artistic merit and sequel setup? I don't know that the first film masters that. I don't know that any of them master that, to be honest with you. The endings of this thing always kind of fall flat because we always get a little inkling that Freddy might be back. So, I don't know. But since it's the first film and it does have sort of a an ending fake-out, I did want to bring it to the forefront of the conversation, and so I hope I've done that. But given all of that information, I think our battle is complete, and it's time to finalize the rankings. I enjoy both of these films a lot. I think that New Nightmare does it a little bit more for me. However, I realize this is an instance where I have to understand the context of the first film, what it does, and what it accomplishes with what it has at its disposal. So it's a very, very neck-and-neck decision. New Nightmare gives a scream. Scream becomes more iconic in its execution and infamy for what it does for the horror genre. But never forget that New Nightmare gets you there. But because New Nightmare is not... New Nightmare is the path to getting there, not the reason. I'm going to go ahead and put Wes Craven's New Nightmare at number four. And I'm going to slot in at number three, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. It's a personal list. It is what it is. You can do the math at this point, though. You know what we haven't talked about yet. So you already know who's going to battle for one and two, and it may or may not line up with your list. But here we are with our final battle, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, versus A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. It's interesting to me that uh, much like in our last battle, I found myself taking a lot more notes just naturally as I was watching these two entries. Um, You know, I had preconceived notions about where I would rank them, but, you know, I think it just goes to show that the logic is sound, in my opinion. Let's start with the Dream Warriors, since we're dealing with two titles that are next to one another sequentially. We might as well start with the first. Very... Very economic use of time in this film, and in a good way. Less than 20 minutes into this bad boy, we have our setting, our leads, uh, we have major minor characters established, and even a few minor characters established as well. The world feels completely built. We get a little mystery, because Nancy is now back in the fold, here to help out a group of troubled teens that are in the Weston Hills Asylum. Or, uh, hospital, I guess you could call it. And uh, a mystery surrounds what's killing these kids. But also, Nancy appears to be taking some sort of strange medication as well. We also get our first sighting of the mysterious nun who will help us along our journey. And it doesn't... All this information overload that's not overload in a bad way that we get in the first 20 minutes doesn't feel like anything's getting short-changed. Because about 22 minutes in... We finally get a very exciting sequence with the Freddy Worm. If you see the film, you know what I'm talking about as Freddy tries to eat Kristen, our new female lead, uh, played by uh, Patricia Arquette. Kind of famous, so all right. And we finally learn in this sequence what will be sort of the genesis of the the Dream Trilogy, 3, 4, and 5. Kristen has a dreaming power, if you will. She has the ability to pull people into her dreams. She does this with Nancy, and then later on in the film, we'll do it with the rest of the dream 
warriors. The dream warriors are the kids that are in this hospital that are all suffering from nightmares. The doctors, of course, believe it's some sort of group psychosis, which is a little whatever, but you know, that's sort of what they give us. Now, I don't want to do a minute by minute on this thing, but I really wanted to establish how much it is that we actually get out of the, the opening third of this film. For some crazy reason, it just works. I also like this movie because for a horror film or a slasher, it feels unique. It's not necessarily about punishing the kids for their sins like Friday the 13th does. The film goes out of its way to specifically tell us that their sins are not the reason for their punishment. Uh, Nurse Ratchet, who isn't really Nurse Ratchet, she's just a cranky old doctor, tries to blame the nightmares that they're having on being byproducts of moral lapses, immoral choices, you know, your sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And Nancy, of course, stands up for the kids and feverishly denies this. It's just a nice, interesting dichotomy for an 80s slasher. The hospital setting, to me anyway, makes the victims all feel sympathetic. It's not as if they're ignoring the problem that they're collectively facing. They aren't passive non-believers like, Oh, I don't know. I don't believe in that Freddy crap. They're here asking, begging for help that they are not getting. It's a small adjustment to the usual setup of slasher films, but it adds a layer of empathy that I wasn't actually expecting. The Dream Warriors, you know, they do eventually start dying off one by one. The marionette death sequence is quite an achievement in special effects for the time. And I believe that. I'm not just saying it. It's also horrifying and makes my veins hurt, if that's even a thing that you can believe. Uh, we get a brief Zsa Gabor cameo as Freddy kills one of the warriors. Well, she's I guess the early kids that die aren't warriors technically because they don't get powers, but we'll just include them in that list. As uh, Freddy kills the girl who wants to be a TV star by slamming her into the television and delivering the iconic franchise-altering line, Welcome to primetime, bitch. It's funny that that sort of becomes the go-to example of Freddy quote-unquote becoming a more funny character because the line is quick and the scene really isn't played for laughs. Nor is the next immediate shot, which is of Larry Fishburne finding the girl's corpse embedded into the TV. It's actually a very chilling uh, visual. Uh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you were hearing correctly. I said Larry Fishburne because Lawrence Fishburne is an orderly in this film. He's one of the nicer characters, too, and he's credited as Larry, not Lawrence, and I kind of love it. Speaking of actors who appear in this movie, a gentleman by the name of Craig Wasson is also very likable as Dr. Gordon. The doctor who's kind of on the kid's side and agrees with Nancy that this can't possibly be something like a group psychosis. Uh, he's particularly good in the scene where he meets the mysterious nun for the first time. And he confesses uh, that science is his main religion. Uh, they're at the, a funeral for one of the dream warriors as he says this. And it's offering him very little comfort in these trying times. Uh Nancy introduces the doc to the Malaysian dream doll, which I forgot is something that Batman Forever totally stole in its presentation. And now I just want to see Batman v. Freddy. Who would win? Oh, well. The idea of the dream warriors 
or finding power in your dreams is the type of idea or concept, speaking of Batman v. Freddy, that I think modern blockbusters and audiences would just eat up. You know, this film doesn't particularly lean into it until the very end, and it's a little too late, and it's a little too less. But having all these teens being threatened by Freddy, realizing that in the dream, they can sort of give themselves power to fight back, you basically create new IPs with every single teenager. And I don't say that to sound like a person who doesn't respect the art aspects of the presentation. I just happen to notice this as I'm watching it. Like, my God, if this movie was made now, the Dream Warriors aspect would be played up so much more. Because not only would it be more cost-effective to do such a thing, but I'm sure that the creators would realize that that is what the audience wants. You know, the the cynical side of my brain, as a, I would say, is that part. But the, the more rational side of my brain uh, allows me to see that it's really just the kids fighting back. And in this narrative, that isn't something we haven't seen a lot of. We haven't seen the teenagers really be empowered until it's too late. Um, of course, Joey, our mute child, uh, gets into a little bit of a shenanigans when he has some dreams about a sexy nurse. Uh, this causes the crusty old deed of the hospital to fire the doctor and Nancy because Joey ends up in a coma and they've already got two corpses on top of this as well. Um, you know, it's okay because this allows Nancy and the doctor to try to really... It puts them in a position where they have to go out of their way to fight for the kids. And that's something that rarely happens in this movie, like the adults standing up and I appreciate that. We learn from the mysterious nun that Freddy Krueger's body was never buried in hallowed ground. And that's what allows him to keep coming back. So Nancy and the doc visit a local pub, conveniently named Little Nemo's, which I actually quite enjoy as an Easter egg. Because, of course, Little Nemo, the little boy who adventured in Slumberland. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, reintroducing John Saxon! All right! Get down, get funky. But yeah, John Saxon is back as Nancy's dad because he knows where the bones are buried. Um, now, the doc and uh, Mr. Saxon go off on a little side quest to, to find the bones. I do love that they make a brief pit stop at a uh, church so the doc can play Simon Belmont, get himself some holy water and crucifixes, everything he needs to fight a Castlevania-style vampire. Nancy returns to the hospital, and the Dream Warriors enter the world of the dream to finally battle Freddy. One of the girls is a recovering heroin addict, and I love in the dream that she is this sort of punk rock biker chick, she is killed by overdosing on heroin as Freddy turns his fingers into needles to inject her. Uh, and all the spots where she's injected herself before come alive as mouths who are like waiting to suckle on the heroin. It's horrifying. It's a genius idea. It's very outside the box. I appreciate it. And I did not think it would strike me as terrifying as it actually did. The girl's name was Taryn. And uh, that's a name that I like. I knew a Taryn once. She's a really hip chick that helped me out when I was in a bind one time. So maybe that's an extra reason why I felt this thing. Uh, Taryn's death, not the only heartbreaker 
Shazam's is as well. Because, of course, we got a nerdy kid with glasses who loves Dungeons and Dragons, who fancies himself a wizard, uh, and Freddy disposes of him quite easily despite the Shazam or wizard type powers. Kincaid, the rough kid with a heart of gold, has super strength. I love this uh, aspect of it because it kind of allows him to be Superman, even though he doesn't fly or anything. But he also, at one point, when trying to get uh, Freddy to come out and fight, calls him a pussy. He's like, Freddy, you pussy! And that reminds me of Friday the 13th Part 6, when our hero Tommy Jarvis also tries to beckon Jason to a fight by yelling, Come on, Jason, you pussy! Uh, And I'm a big fan of Friday the 13th Part 6, which we will discuss in a few weeks. Nancy in the dream, uh, runs down a pipe to rescue one of the kids. I think it's Kristen. And she absolutely does what the kids these days would call a Naruto run. And I like that quite a bit. Uh, Finally, we get to a character aspect about Freddy that continues forward in this dream trilogy, this 3-4-5. Freddy reveals, by taking off his shirt, that the souls of his victims live inside his body as faces, and it's gross, but I do like the idea that every time he kills, he gets more power. In a junkyard, speaking of power, John Saxon and the Doc go uh, find Freddy's bones. Freddy leaves the dream world battle and inhabits his bones, I guess, and the bones come to life and kill John Saxon and fight the Doctor. I like this junkyard fight quite a bit. It's short, The VFX is what it is. I'm not here to throw shade at old special effects. That doesn't do anything for anybody. But you can feel the budget burning away every time this skeleton moves. Like, this had to be so expensive. So I understand why it's shot. The skeleton wins and then does the O'Doyle rules pose. If Seriously, if somebody took the screenshot of this and plastered, Freddy wins flawless victory, it would make complete sense. He goes back into the dream state. Joey, the kid who couldn't talk, unleashes his inner black canary and, you know, takes Freddy down with his power voice. You know, we then get an interesting moment as Nancy is basically killed, but she comes back for one final scare and and kills Freddy in the dream as the doc buries the bones and sprinkles some holy water onto them, which causes Freddy to dissipate in the dream world. I call it an interesting moment because the way that they show Freddy, like, dying, he sort of starts to spin around really fast and, like, souls come out of his body. And the concept is fine, but the way that it's shot, uh, Freddy spinning makes me feel like I'm watching an earnest movie. I don't know why. But Nancy is killed in the dream as, uh, you know, Kristen, our new heroine, mourns for her. John Saxon defeated as well. And just like that, the film concludes with a badass Dawkins theme song. We're the Dream Warriors! I don't want to dream no more! It is such a badass song, it absolutely demands that this credit sequence should should have some sort of curtain call where we see all the characters one more time. And it's like, Heather Langerkamp as Nancy, you know, and she like smiles for the camera. Such a great song. It's really, really, really 80s rock and roll. And it and it gives this movie a little bit of life. The movie's great. It really is, and I firmly believe that. 
the script is sound, the idea is huge, and I really like that. This theme song kicking in at the end makes me feel like it could have been a little bit more. And I wonder what that more could be. Let's talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Right away, this movie starts out with a fantastic bitchin', dare I say, song called Nightmare, which is sung by Kristen. Well, okay, let me explain. Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey, the dream warriors that survived, are going to form the apex of the first half of this film. Uh, Kristen, uh, you know, no longer played by Patricia Arquette, now played by a gal named Tuesday Night. And uh, she sings the opening song, and I like it quite a bit. This film, also famously directed by Rennie Harlan. Uh, the movie, that being the Dream Master, that he directs here would get him his next job. A small film called Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Kristen, Joey, and Kincaid, as I mentioned, return because this is the middle portion of the Dream Trilogy. With 3 being the first part and 5 being the finale. Right from the opening, this movie feels very alive. The camera is moving around. The camera is zooming in and out of things. And the sets are very brightly lit and looks a little more expensive than usual. They aren't more expensive than usual. It feels like, and pardon the expression, but for any wrestling fans out there, it's like watching... NWA Wrestling, like Jim Crockett Promotions, turning the channel and seeing the WWF between every movie that precedes and this film. The score, that being the, the musical score, is much more vibrant and engrossing as well. Make no mistake, folks, what we have right here is a bona fide summer blockbuster version of A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the first film in the franchise to be released in that lucrative summer season. Uh, it was released on August 19th, 1988, so right before Back to School. It's genius. Uh, one and two were released in November, which is strange because you would think October would be better, maybe for a Halloween tie-in. And the third film was released in February. Halloween H2O would later pull this tactic as well by leaving its fall release date for a summer blockbuster release. It feels... Like, this film is just what the doctor ordered. The filmmakers are also definitely leaning into Freddy Krueger as the star now. But it's good that the Dream Warriors are here to pivot this film to the next generation, and their dream powers are not ignored as well, and will be a big part of this film as it continues forward. We have an interesting dynamic shift that has the kids that fought before be the deniers of Freddy in this film's early stages. So it's not the adults, per se. Uh, Joey and Kincaid refuse to believe that Freddy Krueger could possibly return, whereas Kristen now is the individual who believes it is a definite possibility. We then get our first music video-style sequence as Kristen drives to meet the twins. It seems that the success of Dawkins' Dream Warrior song is really inspiring a more modern and realistic presentation. It's like we have kids doing kid things, like listening to good music. <clears throat> the twins, previously mentioned, are Alice and Rick. 
The Enhanced. Okay, they're not like the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, or are they? Now, I think that they're twins. I don't actually have confirmation that they're twins, but they're in all the same classes. They are brother and sister. I mean, they look-ish enough alike to conceivably be twins, so I'm just going to allow it. Alice is a little bit droopy and introverted. Uh, Alice's brother, Rick, seems to be more of a cool kid in school type of guy. He gives me serious Zach Morris vibes, which is fitting, because the actor that plays Rick actually appeared in Good Morning Miss Bliss, which would, of course, be the uh, junior high years of Saved by the Bell, where he played Deke, a bully that couldn't read, that gave Screech a hard time. They have a dad who's a widower, and a bit of a drunk. And here in the opening scene, he cracks me up because he's yelling at Alice. He's like, Alice, you going out of the house dressed like that? And it's like, dude, she's dressed like a pilgrim. So I'm not sure if he's thinking that she's a slut because he's drunk and he doesn't realize what she's wearing, or if he's embarrassed that she's dressed like a pilgrim. Further evidence that Rick is a cool kid in school, the cost of the moose in his hair could feed a family of five here in 2022 for a year. But he is a smooth operator. He's Kristen's boyfriend, and I kind of dig his suit. We go to school and meet the rest of the gang. There's tough workout girl Debbie, who hates bugs and cockroaches. Varsity quarterback and resident hunk, Dan. Girl with asthma and female Urkel, Sheila. They do some typical bantering, and for some reason, guys, I don't... Well, I I do know why. It feels much more vibrant. It feels much more alive. It feels modern. Even though it's 1988, and here I am sitting in 2022, it feels modern. It feels like kids at school just talking with some decent music playing in the background. I don't know any other way to describe it. I would also like to point out that Rick has a textbook marked Soviet Psychology, which makes it mind-boggling to me that that would be a subject you're studying at school. There's nothing wrong with it, but it also makes me feel extra special seeing Soviet Union on this kid's textbook. You know, it dates it, yes, but for some strange reason, I can see past it because compared to the other films, it feels like it's happening in the now, whatever the now is. Um, we, we get our first instance here of a beautiful wrinkle that's added to the Nightmare on Elm Street mythology because Alice, the droopy twin sister, is a daydreamer. She's not confident in herself. She doesn't live in the now, and she often has very brief cutaways where she daydreams things. Keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, this movie school that they're in, it's absolutely huge. One side effect of this is that I definitely feel like they're in California, even though they're supposed to be in Ohio, because I've lived in Ohio my entire life, and I know what Ohio feels like. And this was filmed in, like, uh, Venice, Venice Beach area, I think. So, I mean, you know, it kind of exposes itself a little bit, but that's okay. It adds to the polish of the film. Um, I also kind of like that the polish here makes it feel like a calm before a storm. It's a nice contrast to the small, enclosed nature of previous entries. Back at the twins' house, Rick is practicing some karate, and we get the first appearance of the fantastic song Anything, Anything from Dramarama. 
or Dramarama, however you'd like to say it. Uh, Rick, of course, is pledging his allegiance to the 80s by doing white guy karate. It, it's, it's, it's cheesy, okay? It is, but it also feels so much like a part of the time. He's a nunchucks master as well. This whole thing is shot like a music video, and it rules. I'm putting my foot down. Alice then daydreams about telling off her dad. And her daydream sequences have whip pans, zooms, the camera moves. And it goes such a long way to making me feel like this movie is alive. Finally, though, it's time for the dead to return. Much has been said about Freddy's resurrection method in this film. You see... Kincaid gets pulled into a nightmare at Freddy's junkyard. The same junkyard where the Doctor and John Saxon battled the Bones in uh, The Dream Warriors Part 3. Kincaid's dog, Jason, has also been brought into this dream because Jason, the dog, is asleep. Kincaid and the dog wander to where Freddy was buried. They don't necessarily realize that that's where they are. And Jason, the dog, lifts his leg... And starts pissing, and then starts pissing out some fire, right on Freddy's grave. It's pretty goddamn rock and roll. And as I mentioned, the dog's name is Jason, so I'm going to allow this. But in all seriousness, I think what they're going for here is desecration of the gravesite. And this allows Freddy to no longer be buried on hallowed ground. So it's rock and roll, and it makes sense for the script. I mean, look. If it didn't if 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 I didn't buy into this desecration thing, this would be ludicrous and absolutely a thing that I would ding it for. But it seems to make sense. Freddy then is resurrected, and since the dream warriors are separated from one another, this is Kincaid's dream only, not Kristen's. Uh, Freddy is able to dispose of Kincaid. And you know, it's weird because before Freddy can do this, we do get this sequence that I, I didn't... I wasn't going to mention this, but I think I want to. Freddy's bones like come back together in his flesh forms, and he, he grabs the old duster hat out of the sand and puts his glove on. It's absolutely played like it's a hero shot. And it's interesting to see Freddy portrayed this way. This gives a little more fuel to the fire that Freddy is the star now. Um, it's an interesting choice. It's a choice that works, though. Even though Freddy is the villain, and clearly there are characters here that we want to root for, it's interesting that there's a, a strange dynamic between we enjoy seeing Freddy on screen now, we're ready for the thrills, the chills, the jokes, but we also have some pretty decent teenagers this go-around. Uh, of course, you know, Kincaid is dispatched. Before he can be stabbed, though, he yells, Freddy's back! Freddy's back! And the camera pans out to reveal that the entire planet Earth is this junkyard. Because it's just a dream, after all. It's it's interesting. And that's sort of the genesis of the entire conversation about the Dream Master. It's interesting. It's something different that I would not have expected. Uh, You know, Freddy makes the kill, two down, one to go. We see that Kristen is awoken from her slumber by Kincaid's death. So she's starting to feel like something is amiss in the life of the Dream Warriors and has herself a cigarette. We smash cut to Joey, who can talk now. And what's Joey doing late at night? Well, 
he's watching MTV and listening to some Billy Idol. Right. Joey, of course, falls asleep, and much like he did in the Dream Warriors, he also falls for some boobs again because he has a wet dream where a naked chick is inside his waterbed. Now, I don't blame him. I mean, hey, there's nothing wrong with this chick. But holy shit, I think everyone in the audience, including myself, is about to forever gain a fear of waterbeds because the girl disappears, Freddy pops out, and, you know, drowns Joey in the fucking waterbed. Waterbeds. They still creep me out. Now, back with the twins, Alice has a, a mirror that she looks into in this film. It's in her room, but the mirror is covered in photographs of her and all her friend groups, and you can't actually see your own reflection in the mirror. And it's kind of sad. It's a nice shortcut for, again, letting us know that Alice lacks any form of confidence and doesn't see herself maybe even as a full person. Um, Rick arrives in the room, and, and, and you know we sort of get this mirror comparison actually spoken out loud which sort of bemoans the need for the visual cue as well but I'll go ahead and allow it because I feel like the twins do have good brother sister chemistry here Uh, Rick even takes some time to teach her how to do like a jumping karate kick yelling Sai! It's cute it is what it is Um, now Kristen meets up with Alice and uh, you know Kristen's not quite sure what's going on she can't find Joey and Kincaid Alice mentions that her mother who's deceased used to teach her this old rhyme about the dream master. Now, I mentioned this specifically because I want to point out that as this film was being made, there was a writer strike going on, so there was no ability to have actual writers punch up dialogue. I'm okay with the concept of the dream master nursery rhyme, but the nursery rhyme itself is pretty lame. But I wanted to use this as an excuse to mention the writer strike because I think that informs this film. It tells you that, well, it tells me anyway, as I'm watching it, I think one of the reasons they this film maybe leaned into a more visual aesthetic is, number one, Rennie Harlan, you know, being an, a director that has a little bit of flair, but also, number two, if the dialogue's not getting it done, let's punch up the visuals a little bit. Alice, I should note, also works at a diner called the Crave Inn, like Craven, Wes, but Kristen and Rick bust in and let Alice and Dan know, who's also there, that uh, you know Joey and Kincaid are indeed dead. And uh, she takes them for, to the Freddy Krueger house, which is not a good idea because when you know about Freddy, you become susceptible to him, perhaps. Uh, we get to see that Kristen's mom is back, played by the same actress. I like that. And she drugs Kristen to make her fall asleep. In the dream... Uh, You know, Kristen remembers what Alice told her. Dream yourself in a positive space. So Kristen's on a beach. Until, of course, Freddy Krueger plays Jaws with his claw and destroys a sandcastle. And I like this. The beach dream is nice, it's vibrant, and again, it looks like a music video. Freddy doing the jaw shark is cheesy, but it's so cheesy, I'm going to say it's cool and not lame. The camera work here is at least kinetic. The exploding sandcastle is a nice touch within the context of this film that we're dealing with. Freddy finally kills Kristen, finally gets her number. 
As Kristen is dying, though, Freddy tells her to call on her friends. And of course, using the old adage that if I tell you not to do something, you're probably going to do it. Ray from the Ghostbusters, I'm looking at you. Kristen accidentally summons Alice into the dream so Alice can see this whole thing go down. Kristen, however, as she's burning to death, throws the world-famous from Street Fighter, Hadouken! Because she throws some sort of fireball that goes through Freddy and passes into Alice. So now Alice has Kristen's dream power. Alice now has the ability to pull the other teenagers in the film into her own dreams. So this closes the book on part three. Part four benefits from being a continuation of part three. And now it benefits from getting to be its own movie as well. It's, I don't want to call it genius, but given the context of this franchise, it's a very, very smart move. We cut to the cemetery where Kristen is buried. We see that she's buried next to Kincaid, Joey, Nancy, Nancy's dad, all the other dream warriors. This is a nice version of an Aqua Cave favorite saying, say it with me now, brand synergy. The first sequence of the Nightmare on Elm Street saga is complete. Those responsible have all been punished. And I'm doing the finger quotes thing here. And this is now the story of a new generation. A generation of kids on Elm Street that are supposedly innocent. Alice begins to act like Kristen in a way. She finds herself smoking. And her daydreaming has become a little bit more dangerous because she has that new dream power. Sheila and Alice meet up in the ladies' bathroom. Alice repeats some dialogue that Kristen said earlier, which is a shortcut to let us know that she's now taking on Kristen characteristics. Uh, Sheila shows us that she made Deb a bug zapper that'll come into play later. Uh, Sheila heads out to head to class. Great moment here as Alice puts a cigarette to her mouth and strikes a match before suddenly saying to herself, Wait a minute, I don't smoke. She didn't realize this as she went to the store to buy the cigarettes or the matches. It's okay. It's silly, but, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay with it. But I also want to point out it's silly because I want to be fair to all the films. Alice has a daydream in physics class. She accidentally pulls Sheila into the dream. This sequence is horrifying. Freddy appears as the teacher and slowly creeps towards Sheila. He goes right up to her and grabs her, yanks her out of her chair and says a classic Freddy one-liner, Wanna suck face? Sheila, as she's about to have all of the life literally sucked out of her by Freddy, actually has one more line. She says and whimpers, No, this is a great choice. Why? Why is that, Johnny? Because without the no, it's not as terrifying because the one-liner would be what the audience is reacting to. This allows us to have the one-liner, which makes us, huh, and then Sheila's horrifying, frightened, no, takes us back to the horror aspects of this. You're supposed to be frightened by Freddy doing this. So we're reacting as an audience to the no, and not to the one-liner. Freddy then kisses her, or sucks all the air out of her, and we see Sheila have a massive asthma attack in the real world. Again, scary, because if you have bad asthma, I'm imagining that this could happen to an actual real person. Alice and Rick, her twin brother, along with the quarterback, Dan and Deb, watch as the EMTs take Sheila's body away. They lament that she was going to be a doctor. 
for some reason, it actually feels kind of tragic. And this is a character we hardly knew. We knew her only as a nerdy stereotype. But she seemed so innocent in this Elm Street saga. I don't know. It just kind of stood out to me. I mentioned when we were talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 that Freddy's awkward run is iconic. I did promise you a few more awkward runs, so let's get into it. As they're watching the body get put into the ambulance, Alice has a breakdown and runs away and does a ridiculous run. It's like a 7 out of 10 on the awkward scale, okay? Dan then looks at Rick and he's like, gosh, it looks like that story about Freddy's getting to her. Rick awkwardly delivers this line. I don't know if it's a story, man. We're dropping like flies here. And then full sprints with head bobbing and arms flailing and his trench coat blowing in the wind. He sprints to console his sister. It's a 10 out of 10 on the awkward run scale, which is, yes, a scale I just invented. But still, I love it. Uh, Dan goes to see Alice at the diner. Maybe some sparks fly, maybe they don't. But the whole point of this scene is to let the audience know, in case they didn't get it, that Alice now has the power to pull people into her dreams. Back at school, uh, legendary Nightmare on Elm Street producer Bob Shea cameos, lecturing about a teacher, talking about dreams. We learn there's a theory that states when we dream, we can enter a positive or negative gate, which will determine how our dreams are interpreted, and the Dream Master guards the positive to keep the negative out. It's a quick thing. Honestly, it's a little forgettable, but I do appreciate them trying to go the extra mile setting up a world that makes sense, given everything we know already. Unfortunately, though, something that doesn't make sense... It's time to say goodbye to Rick, who is a favorite of mine. Alice falls asleep. Rick falls asleep while taking a shit. It's happened to all of us. It's okay. Uh, The stall that Rick is in becomes a crazy elevator. Uh, We then enter a dojo. Uh, Rick goes full Daniel LaRusso and tries to fight an invisible Freddy. But alas, sayonara, Rick's on. Alice screams and shatters some windows. Uh, because her twin brother is dead. And this reminds me of the time that the Scarlet Witch reacted to a Quicksilver getting killed. I don't know. I kind of like it. Alice does some daydreaming at Rick's funeral where she imagines that Rick is still alive. I like that the screenplay allows them one more scene of interaction because, after all, they were kind of likable. Alice decides there will be no more daydreams, and she lets Deb and Dan know tonight is the night that it's time to fight back. Deb gives Alice her tough girl spiked bracelet thing, uh, and a plan is formed to strike against Freddy. Alice leaves the scene and says, mind over matter, which is a Sheila quote. So again, we get Alice sort of becoming an amalgam of every kid that's been a victim of Freddy. Alice goes back to her room, and she's standing in front of the mirror, removing some pictures. She sees her face, finally. She also has Rick's karate headband and his old nunchucks. Rick's karate theme song starts to play in the background. Anything, anything, anything. Alice busts out the nunchucks and realizes she has inherited Rick's karate powers, which is a ridiculously cheesy sentence to say out loud. But this scene, it works for some reason. It feels alive and kinetic. Yes, the actor that's doing the nunchucking has a bad samurai, bad samurai cop style wig, but it's okay. It doesn't matter because this movie is alive. 
Alice's dad tells her she can't leave. She sneaks out anyway to go meet Dan at the diner, but he's not there. We then get what's probably the longest dream sequence in the entire movie. Alice goes to an old-timey movie theater. She sits up in the balcony to see, uh, I think she's watching Reefer Madness. And then the film turns to Freddy's house. Uh, a Memorex commercial starts as she starts to get sucked into the screen. Um, and the sequence is very well shot. It's very dreamy. Kind of feels like a music video. We realize that all the victims from Freddy's previous, uh, well, previously in the movie from Freddy, were all in the theater with her, watching her get sucked in. Now she's in the diner, and she confronts an older version of herself that never moved out of the town and worked at the diner her entire life. I'm not really into this dream sequence that much until Freddy shows up and actually gives this dream sequence a purpose within the script of the film. He also eats some disgusting meatball soul pizza that I don't want to talk about because it's going to make me throw the fuck up. He wants more children, though. And he's pulled Alice into this elaborate dream sequence so she can give him more souls. And she does think about Deb. Freddy allows Alice to leave the dream and goes to pursue Deb. It is, like I said, it's longer for certain. But I do really like that it at least makes sense to the narrative. And it's not just here to be like a cheap killer of time. Now, we're about to encounter a genius sequence. Alice finally shows up at the diner for real this time, and her and Dan race off to save Deb. We cut back to Deb, who is indeed working out with some Sinead O'Connor tunes, as Alice and Dan arrive to the rescue. Alice races inside the house. We then get a genius sequence. Alice finally shows up at the real diner, and her and Dan race off to save Deb. We cut back to Deb, who's of course working out with Sinead O'Connor, and now Freddy is there as well, as Alice and Dan arrive to the rescue and Alice races inside the house. We then get a genius sequence. Alice finally shows up at the real diner, and her and Dan race off to save Deb. Dan finally mentions, hey, wait a minute, I think we've done this before. Yes, folks, it is true, Freddy has trapped them in a time loop. This sequence is great because it always fools people who are watching the movie into thinking there's something wrong with the copy of the film that they're viewing. And hopefully, my little podcast gag there made you think the same. Deb, by the way, is experiencing some massive body horror. Freddy breaks her limbs, turns her into a fucking cockroach, Traps her in a roach motel, makes her face fall in glue. Oh, God, it's just terrifying. This whole thing is disgusting, uh, but it's so well done. The animatronics here are great. The model work is good. Alice and Dan experience one more time loop, but then they realize it's too late. Deb is dead. They have a crash. Dan is on death's door and needs to be operated on. Alice realizes she's going to have to do this thing alone and kill Freddy before Dan has to go under for surgery because he'll be asleep. It's time for the final battle. So Alice goes home and rips all the pictures off of her mirror. She's now ready to be a complete person. She has a full getting ready for the fight montage with a rockin' fucking tune. She brings the headband, the studded belt, the bug zapper, the nunchucks. It's all here. She's dressed like a badass and insanely hot. Although, she was hot the whole time. They just 
tried to make her look dumpy. And that's not important. Just thought I'd mention it, though. And again, say it with me, folks. It feels like a music video. Fucking A. She confronts Freddy, uses all the abilities she's gained throughout the film, finishes him off with the Dream Master rhyme. Her real life is now better. As the film ends, we see her on a date with Dan. But will Freddy return? So that's it. That's Nightmare 3 and Nightmare 4 contrasted and compared with story beats and also some cinematic elements that I pulled out of it. The Dream Warriors feels like a more complete film. Dream Master is a more enthusiastic watch or experience. They're both great, given the proper context here within the franchise, okay? These aren't like Academy Award winning films, but I think they stand out above the rest. The big difference, in case it hasn't been picked up on yet, the Dream Master is is so much more alive. It stands out amongst all of the films, but in a good way. It also shares the same runtime that pretty much all these movies have, like 90-some-odd minutes. But it's able to pivot from the old guard to the new guard and give Alice a full journey. It's too fun to not love. Number two on the list, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. And in my opinion, number one, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. What a time we've had reliving this whole fucking franchise. It was a lot of work to rewatch it. I hope it was worth a listen for you as well. Let's finish off with a recap and get the hell out of here to take a nap. Number nine, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Number eight, a Nightmare on Elm Street, 2010, the remake. Number seven, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part Five, The Dream Child. Number six, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part Two, Freddy's Revenge. Number five, Freddy vs. Jason. Number four, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Number three, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Number two, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part Three, The Dream Warriors. And number one. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. If you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe to the Aqua Cave because Aquatober is going to continue to rage forward. We're going to be doing lists like this for all the big horror franchise and our regular content will be appearing as well. Thanks so much for joining us here in the Aqua Cave. I'm Johnny C and a dreamer is you.